we're wrapping up today with gospel mercy. Starting next week, we're going to be entering uh, the Advent season. And our plan for this Advent season is to go over uh, what we call the gifts of Christmas. The gifts of Christmas. And traditionally, they are love, joy, hope, and peace. So for each Sunday, we will be going over each characteristic and especially how Christ brings each of those things into our lives. So next week on our first Advent Sunday, we'll be having an afternoon service at 4 o'clock here. Pastor Dwight uh, will be preaching uh, on hope. Uh, He's at the very tail end of his wife's pregnancy, so I want to warn you in advance, if he leaves in the middle of the message, uh, we're going to have one random person just take over. So be ready, uh, be on guard. Uh, but we're hoping things will be okay in terms of schedule, uh, scheduling. Uh, our assistant pastor at West Philly, Pastor Charles, just had his child as well. And also another pastor there, Pastor Travis, just recently had back surgery. So he's out of commission as well. So they're going down like flies. So for these next coming weeks, me and Pastor Dan, we're going to be helping each other out. Uh, so just to guys, uh, give you guys a heads up on that. On the 16th, we're going to have our lessons and carol service. And during that time, we're going to have our children, our families, all of us gathered together. And we're going to have service together. There will be a children's message. Also, we're going to be going over uh, the carols and lessons for our teaching for that day. So that will be a great time to invite friends and neighbors. So let's look at our passage as we uh, continue our series. And the first thing I want us to look at is verse 25. In verse 25, you'll see that it begins with the word, behold, behold. And what's going on is, in Jesus' time, what would be customary was for the teacher or the rabbi uh, to be teaching in the temple, standing in the midst of a crowd as they're listening to his teaching. So in the midst of his teaching, there are Pharisees, there are scribes and lawyers, and one particular lawyer stands up, which is why Luke writes the word, behold, immediately, abruptly, and ask Jesus a question. He wants to put Jesus to the test. Behold. So as soon as we read that word lawyer, however, you and I might have these modern de- uh, depictions of what a lawyer is, someone who works in the civil office or, or in the political sphere, but that's not the kind of lawyer uh, we have here. What it means to be a lawyer back then was someone who was an expert in the Mosaic law meaning the Old Testament. So he wasn't a political lawyer. He was a Bible scholar. He was a pastor. He knew his stuff. So he was there with the Pharisees and the other scribes, and he asked this question. He puts uh, Jesus to the test. Now, just because he's a lawyer, he's a Bible theologian, you and I, we might separate ourselves from that person, thinking, well, you know, this passage is about for those pastors and those Bible scholars, not for someone like me. But let me have you rethink that, because the lawyer here, what really sets him apart is he's someone who's very confident in what he knows, is someone who's very confident in his knowledge of the world, which is why he has the boldness and courage to stand up, behold, and ask Jesus this question. And being that confident in your knowledge, that's something you and I both can relate to. Because every one of us, we, we bring with ourselves, as we read God's word, our 18 years or, or 30 years or 60 years of life experience, don't we? 
And when we read God's word, what we tend to do is, okay, let's see if God's word matches up with what I believe. And if it matches up with what I believe, yes and amen. But there might be times when God's word actually wants to change, conform what we believe about ourselves and about the world. And the question then is, are you so confident in what you know? Are you going to put the God's word under your feet or are you going to put God's word above you? Are you going to come to God's word testing it to see if it adheres to what you believe or are you going to come to God's word trusting it? So let's be reminded this morning that we should have humble hearts as we approach God's word. As George Whitfield once said, we should approach it as if our souls are blank. And if our souls are blank and we give it into the hands of Jesus, then we can be sure that he's going to write on it what he wishes. And the end product is going to be a picture of himself. But that's only if we come to God's word with these blank slates, God Whatever you want to speak to me this morning, I will obey. So with that, the way that we're going to break down this passage is by the three kinds of people that we see. Number one, the lawyer. Number two, the clergy, which is the priest and the Levite. And number three, the Samaritan. We're going to break it down into three groups of people. So we're going to start with the lawyer. So we see this confident lawyer stands up saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer responds by stating the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That first part of the commandment to love God comes from Deuteronomy 6. The second part to love your neighbor comes from Leviticus 19. So these verses are combined to sum up the entirety of the Mosaic law. And Jesus is asking, how do you interpret this? How do you sum this up? And when Jesus asks this question, the Lord, he doesn't hesitate. He responds very quickly. And they know this word. They know these passages. Uh, back then, they used to have this thing called a phylactery. And if you know what a phylactery is, it's a small wooden box. And in it, you would put these Bible verses. And you carry it along with you throughout the day and refer to it time to time. And they would have a phylactery with these verses inside. And twice a day, they would pray these verses. So he knew the content of what this law meant. He knew this very well. And so Jesus, he asked them, and he answers correctly. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him for that because he's right. This is the summation of the law. But here's what Jesus gets at. There is a difference, however, in you with the way that you believe and know this commandment and the way you're actually living it out. Are you actually living this commandment out? I know you know it. You believe this. But do I see it in the way you live out your life? And that's the challenge that Jesus gives. And what Jesus is doing, he's saying, the way you love other people, it depends on how much you understand God's love for you. Whereas he would separate these two laws. Okay, I have to love God. And number two, I have to love others. But what Jesus is doing, he's bringing those two together and saying, no. 
the way you love others is contingent upon how much you love God, how much you know God's love. And that is the summation. That is the law. Elsewhere, Jesus says, the one who has been forgiven much is the one who loves much. The one who's been forgiven little loves little. Do you see how he puts the vertical aspect of our relationship with God with the horizontal? And this tells us that your actions, your words, your emotions, the thoughts, how quickly you lose your temper, the thoughts that run inside of your head, you know, anything bad that happens when you act out in anger, our response should not be, well, that person made me act this way. Or I'm frustrated and annoyed because of this traffic jam that I'm in. But rather, it's all because your relationship with God is sour. There's something wrong with your relationship with God, and that's the reason why your horizontal relationships are broken. The great commandment, it refers to all four parts of one's being. It includes the heart, to include your emotions, includes your soul, to include your consciousness, your strength for your motivation, and also your mind to include your intelligence. And these four things, you cannot break them apart because in the Jewish worldview, they saw it as one holistic person. If you literally translate the Greek Old Testament, the way that it uses the words is out of your heart, out of your soul out of your strength, which means that there is so much of God's love inside of you that it flows out towards others. And do you see how intricately connected our love for others is with the love of God? This happens all the time. Uh, When you're filled with love, it tends to portray towards others, doesn't it? You know, one of the most unfortunate things about this city living in Philadelphia is that we all have the most unsettling feeling heading into the new week come Monday, right? Especially from September through January. Why? Because Monday mornings are drastically affected whether or not the Eagles win the night before, right? You and I know that the Eagles, if the Eagles win on Sunday, everyone's going to be happy, coffee's free, the traffic seems to be not as bad, the weather is a lot brighter, And everything just seems to be a lot better. My mom, she works at Wawa. She hopes that the Eagles win because Monday mornings are so much better if the Eagles win. And on the other side, if they lose, for some reason it tends to rain. There's so many cars on the road. The coffee doesn't taste as good. And I get angry and I get annoyed with my coworkers. My productivity gets less, right? Why is that? Why does my relationship with someone else depend on a completely different entity. Do you see how that plays out? The way you treat people has nothing to do with that person, but solely based on something else. And that gives us the notion that all that you do externally, your words, your actions, your demeanor towards others is connected so tightly with your relationship with God. Do you know when I'm the most loving towards my wife? It's when that day I strip another layer of what it means that God loves me. Do you know when I feel the farthest from my wife? It's when I feel the farthest from God. 
I find it interesting that my ability to show others all the facets of God's love, his unconditional love, his patient love, his rebuking love, his pursuing love, his gentle love, all of those facets of God's love can only be shown to others if I first receive that. The other side of the coin tells us that when your heart is filled with hatred, annoyance, and contempt at your brother or your sister, it's not because solely that person has wronged you, but there's something wrong with your vertical relationship with God. And to that, Jesus is saying, you don't really know this great commandment. Look at the nature of the lawyer's question. He's saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? Because I already know what it is. And the nature of his question, he separates the knowing and the doing. Because he says, I already know it, now what must I do? And Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question because you cannot separate these two. If you truly know this commandment, you will be doing it. Likewise, if we know the love of God, we will be loving others. And conversely, if we're not loving others, the logical conclusion is, are you experiencing the love of God in a deep relational way? All that Jesus is saying is nothing new to the lawyer, right? The content of Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 is the same. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. You and I, we've heard that all the time. It's not groundbreaking. And Jesus is saying, even this morning, I don't have anything new to tell you, but what you already know, are you doing it? Do you really know this commandment? And if you're not... Are you looking at others? Are you looking at yourself? Or are you looking at God? Do you believe there's something wrong relationally with God in your relationship with him, which is the reason why everything looks gloomy, the people seems extra annoying to you tomorrow? This lawyer spends most of his time in the temple studying God's word day in and day out. Very likely, similar to us, who comes to church every Sunday, week in and week out, perhaps reading scripture day in and day out. And perhaps a lot of the times we think, you know, I've heard this message before. I heard this passage before. I read this before. But when we read God's word, how often are you reciting God's word versus believing that he's personally speaking to you because this is what you need to hear this morning? Or when you pray, how much do you just simply go over the things that you should be praying for? God, the world, your sins, other people, your loved ones. Or how much do you believe that Jesus is right there next to you saying, tell me. Tell me what's going on. When we come Sunday morning, when we sing these songs and recite these words, how much are we going through the motions? Or how much do we believe that we as part of God's living body in one voice are making noise that's louder than the angels? There is so much more to this than we know. And Jesus is saying, I'm not telling you anything new, but there is so much more. Just the rest of our lives show this love of God and the love that we need to have towards others. And if we do, then we will humbly receive God's word, not to test him, but to trust him. But how does the lawyer respond? 
Well, in verse 29, he doesn't trust him, but rather he wants to justify himself. And he says, who is my neighbor then, Jesus? Who am I supposed to show love to? And so that's going to help us going to our second point, the clergy, the priest and the Levite. So Jesus responds to this lawyer's question with a story. And let me summarize this story. There's a certain man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, if you have a spatial mind, uh, track with me. Jerusalem is about 3,000 feet above sea level. And Jericho is about 1,000 feet below sea level. So there's about a 4,000 feet difference. Now, Jerusalem and Jericho, it's only 17 miles apart, which if it was a flat terrain, it would only take about four hours to get from place uh, uh, point A to point B. But because of its steep down, uh, downhill slope, it's also very rocky and mountainous. There's a lot of caves. It was a very common place for people to get robbed. In fact, it was called the way of Adumen, which means the way of the blood, which is why a lot of these bandits and thieves, they would hide out in these caves. So as Jesus is saying, this person is going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Everyone that's hearing, they know what kind of road he's taking. They know how dangerous this is. So it all makes sense why this guy was mugged and beaten and thrown to the side of the road. And so after that, these two clergymen walk by. The first is a priest. And so what most likely is going on, how the priests operated back then, is that the priests, they would rotate their services. A particular priest would go to the temple in Jerusalem and, and serve for about a month. And after that month, he would go back to his home and spend time with his family and kids. And when it was his turn again, he would go back up to Jerusalem. So coming down from Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he most likely had served his one month of duty. And now he's going back home to his wife and kids. And now as he does, he sees this half-dead half man on the side of the road. He comes up to him. He sees him. And then he crosses to the other side of the road, and he continues on. Likewise, the Levite, after him, he does the same thing. Now, the Levites and the priests, they were similar, but the priests, they were in a slightly more honored position. They're the ones who are directly ministering in the temple. And the Levites, they were kind of the workers of the temple. They would help with the setting up, the worship, and all of the other things in the background so the priests could actually do the ministering. Now, these two men, they were holy people. They were men of high status. Now, one other thing we need to keep in mind is, for these two men, they had to follow the Le Levitical law. And the Levitical law in the Old Testament said that you must be pure. If you want to serve God, you have to be pure. So one such law was you cannot touch a dead body because that will contaminate you. In fact, if you touch a dead corpse, you have to spend your time outside of the camp and you have to cleanse yourself in these rituals. And only after that can you go back into the camp, back with God's people. That's how God set them apart. That's probably why the priest and the Levite, they're walking, they see this dead body, and because they want to adhere to their purity laws, they walk to the other side of the road. 
So what they're trying to do is they're trying to obey God. They're trying to obey God's law by saying, I must not touch a dead body. But you know what? There's also in God's law, even rabbinical sources that tell you that if it's for the sake of saving one's life, that any kind of these purity laws, they are waived because mercy outdoes that. And do you see how they forget the most important parts of the law, but they're so zoomed in and narrowed in on this purity law. On top of that, they don't even know if he's dead yet, right? He's not even dead. They just assume he is and say, I need to protect myself and be pure because I serve God's church, so I go to the other side of the road. So it's not a matter of them not honoring God. But the problem is they lack compassion. It's the lack of compassion. That's the crucial difference between these two men and the Samaritan that will come later. Now, let's take a step back. The priest and the Levite, just because they lacked compassion, they weren't sinister. They're not evil men. They're not the ones who robbed this, this certain man and, and left them half dead on the side of the road. They didn't cause the evil, right? And likewise, you and I, we wouldn't consider ourselves evil or sinister. All of us will say, well, I'm a law-abiding citizen. I treat others the way that I like to be treated. I don't go around causing these kinds of things to others like I see on the news. Do you see where the connection now is going? Perhaps we'll say, when we come across someone in need, you know, when we are made aware of people who are in desperate need spiritually, physically, relationally, oftentimes we don't help them, not because we're evil, but what's the crux of the issue? It's because we're indifferent. We're indifferent. And indifference of us just simply not caring is just as dangerous, in fact, more because it's subtler than being blatantly evil towards our neighbor. The worst thing you could do to someone is to take his or her life. But what we do a lot of the times in our mind is when we pretend that person doesn't exist, when we shut certain people out of our lives, what's the difference between that person not existing for you? Do you see how the sin is the same? Living as if that person doesn't exist, whether it be physically or mentally, the sin still stands. It's murder. And so when we see this word priest and Levite, don't think, okay, that's evil men. That's not me. That's you and I. You need to substitute your name for this priest, for this Levite, because Jesus is not saying, he's not condemning evil people. He's condemning, he's rebuking indifferent people. A lot of the times we try to convince ourselves, saying, you know, we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves because, you know, we're not the ones causing all this evil that we see in this world, especially towards innocent people like this half-dead man. And in fact, there's a lot of reasons why I can't help all of these people suffering around my life, around the world today. Why? Because in our lives, our most important thing is to get from point A to point B. There's no time in between. There are a lot of tasks that you and I need to get done throughout the day, isn't there? There's meetings, classes, and errands that we need to run. 
There's a list of reasons why we can't take intentional steps to stay by that man, to help the poor, to give financially, or to give even something more valuable to us like our time or our energy. Perhaps because it will compromise the needs or, or our perceived needs of our own lives or our families or our loved ones. And we tell ourselves, you know, it's going to cut into the time and energy that I need to use for my studies at school or my job because my job right now is to be a student, right, God? So I need to focus on this. My job right now is to be a father. I need to focus on my child and only on my child. And do you see how we tell ourselves these excuses? And at the end of the day, we are being just as indifferent as the Levite and the priest. This reveals something very dangerous inside you and I. And there's this mechanism that's always operating inside of us. It's always calculating, calculating to see how much it's going to cost if we place, in our, place ourselves in these kinds of situations where people are in need. As soon as I get a letter from someone, someone with financial need, the first thing that this mechanism produces inside of me is the question, how much is this giving going to affect me and my finances? How much excess do I have? Do I have the means? How is this going to impact me and my life? Do you see how that mechanism always turns out those kinds of thoughts? As soon as I get a request to devote some of my time or energy for anyone else, this mechanism performs this rapid, fast calculation to estimate how much of my afternoon I have to use, what other things it's going to cut into, what else I have going on, and so forth. And the dangerous thing is at the end of each calculation, we always choose the path of least resistance, don't we? How we see what's in front of us, but we'd rather cross to the other side of the road because it's easier, because our calculation tells us to go there, not stay here. Do you know how pervasive this mechanism is? You know what happened to me the other day? I was at a restaurant with some of my friends, and as we're about to eat, the host, he brings us to our table, and what happens? You start to think, okay, who am I going to sit with? Where am I going to sit? And immediately, this mechanism started to calculate. If I sit with this person, it's going to be awkward. If I sit with this person, I'm going to have a great time. This person eats too much of my food. Don't sit him. So sit with this person. She eats the less, least food. She doesn't talk that much. She will give me peace and quiet. Immediately, I take that seat. Do you see how pervasive this is inside of us? It just automatically operates. What is the path of least resistance? And that's what you take. You cross over to that side of the road. You know, we say things like, I would help. I just don't see any half-dead people around me. But let me ask you, are you placing yourself away from those people? Are we making those kinds of decisions day in, day out, a little bit more away from those people in need because we know inherently that's where we'd rather be? So when we say things like, well, there's no one in need around me, is it because you placed yourself there? Instead of intentionally placing yourself to the people you know very well needs your help, needs your prayers, needs your resources. That's the difference. You know, I shared before about an experience that I had at a local Starbucks, the one in Roxborough, if you go by it. 
And at this particular Roxborough, there's always a guy there. Uh, he's uh, mentally um, handicapped, and his name is Isaac. And everyone in that Starbucks knows who he is. Everyone's saying, oh, hi, Isaac, and they always have this small talk with him. Everyone but me. I just know his name because people say, but he's going around with the workers, sharing stories, talking about his favorite music. Hey, Isaac, how's it going? You know, there was a period of time where I was there every Saturday, and I never had one conversation with this person. Why? Because he never approached me. And listen to how twisted my thinking is, how rude of him. He goes to talk with everyone but me. Don't, doesn't he know just how awkward it would be for me to just be so left out? And all the time I'm sitting in the corner in my noise-canceling headphones with my laptop in front of my face, looking as unapproachable as I can. And I'm thinking, man, he's so rude. While I'm in the back of an area where it's very obvious that I don't want to be bothered because I'm doing God's work, I'm preparing messages, I'm doing church work. Now, in that same Starbucks on a different Sunday, uh, there was a priest um, working, probably working on his homily. And he was a priest. He had his clerical collar on. And as he got his stuff out, he took out this kind of tag and placed it on the table, and it said, free prayer. And as soon as I saw that, I was thinking, oh, what are you doing, man? <laughs> it's not going to work. Don't do it. And I put back my noise-canceling headphones, and I'm back to my work. And after about 30 minutes of no one, this one lady just sits right across from him. And they start having a conversation for about 10 minutes. And at the end of it, you can see he prays for her, and she just leaves. That whole time, I was thinking to myself, that's not worth it. Why would you do that? And as soon as I saw that woman leave, God was telling me, Luke, don't you think that was worth it? That embarrassment, being left out to dry, don't you think that was worth it for that one lady? I had a lot of good reasons for myself to be unapproachable that afternoon. I had a lot of church work to do, a lot of Bible studying I need to do. And all the while, the people at a local Starbucks, Isaac, the people talking with him, the priest praying for people, you know what that looks like? It looks like church. The Starbucks showed more of a church and more of this great commandment than I was because I was very indifferent. I was very busy. This parable is not written to condemn evil people. The priest and the Levite are not evil people, but this parable is written to rebuke indifferent people, busy people, people who lack compassion, completely so focused on what they need to do without seeing who are in need around them. It's for the people with many excuses, many reasons why they can't go out of their way to find people in need. Now, I want to rephrase how one former pastor, Charles Spurgeon, spoke on this message. I'm going to adapt what he said. He said, imagine you being this priest. Because he says, I never knew a man, a man who refuses to help someone unless he has a good excuse. Most of the time, they have a really good excuse why they can't help someone in need. 
This priest, he is probably coming down from his one month of service in the temple. His wife is waiting for him. He told his wife that he'd be home for dinner. His kids haven't seen his, their father all, all month. So he knows he needs to get home by 7. So because of his responsibility as a father, he had to neglect this half-dead man. On top of that, he served at a temple for a whole month. He has a whole month of salary of wages in his pocket. What if those thieves and bandits come back and they rob him? Of course, that won't be good for my wife, for my family. Then we would starve, wouldn't they? On top of that, it's getting dark. I know there's one man lying on the side of the road, but we don't want there to be two, right? On top of that, I'm a clergy. I could help so much more people if I'm healthy, if I'm still living. Why should I risk my life? On top of that, I can't help this man. I'm not a doctor. What can I do? I don't know how to tend to his wounds. I can't even see blood. My stomach gets sick. As I'm thinking all these things, I hear footsteps behind me. Oh, it must be those bandits coming back. So I go forward and I look back. I see it's a Levite. And I go, oh, good. He'll probably help. It's probably better him than me because I'm in a higher status at church. So, I won't get con- uh, so he won't get condemned as much for breaking his purity law. So I'll hurry up and go home to my wife and to my kids. Do you see how we make these kinds of good excuses? That's what Jesus is rebuking. He's probably on his way home saying, I'll pray for this man. I'll pray. And he goes home to his dinner. The third person, final point, the Samaritan. Let's track back to where Jesus is speaking this parable. Remember, he's speaking to this lawyer. But around him at the temple, there's a crowd of Jewish citizens. And so Jesus, he's speaking not to just that one lawyer. He's also speaking to a group of people, common Jewish citizens. So here's how they're going to be hearing this story. First, Jesus presents the priest, the one who is in the highest position at the temple, and he fails to show compassion. And next, he presents the Levite, the next in line, the next holy man, and he fails to show compassion. Do you see the progression of the story? So they're saying, they're hearing, okay, Jesus is condemning the higher-ups and then the next one, and then he's going all the way down because he wants to champion the common person down with the higher power structures, and the people are waiting in expectancy for this final third person to be a common Jewish man, an average Joe like you and me, because Jesus is a champion for the masses. And that's what they're expecting, for Jesus to say, and finally, not a priest not a Levite, but person, a Jew like you and me, we come and we solve the problems of this world. We perform the best social justice programs that we can. And we fix, with, we fix everything that's going wrong with this world. And that's what the Jewish people are waiting. And at that moment, Jesus says, a Samaritan comes. A Samaritan. And that would have blown their minds. It would have blown their minds because the Samaritans were the sworn enemies of the Jews. You know, back then, when the kingdom of Assyria conquered all the lands, Assyria was up here, Israel was down here, 
and to protect themselves from rebellion, they would put all these other nations between them and mix their population up so they would not rebel. That was Samaria. It was a place where they called the land of the mixed breeds. It was the dark place, the place where nobody went. So much that these Samaritans, they had to create their own temple because they weren't allowed to go to Jerusalem. They had to create their own version of God's word. And there's so much animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. One time, the Samaritans, they infiltrated the Jewish temple and they put dead bones all over the ground. And to retaliate the Jewish people, they went back to the temple in Mount Gerizim and they desecrated the temple. They burned the whole city down. Do you see how much hatred and animosity there was between these two groups of people? And for Jesus to finally say, the third person who comes along, who shows compassion, is a Samaritan, not a common Jew. And unlike the priest, unlike the Levite, it was the Samaritan goes down to him, bounds him up, bounds up his wounds. He pours oil and wine, picks him up and sets him on his own animal, and he's walking a whole, the whole rest of the way, very slowly in this treacherous path, goes to the innkeeper. He spends a whole day with him. I'm sure it threw a wrench in his afternoon schedule, the whole day probably. Probably had to cancel some meetings, change some appointments around. Gives him two denarii, which is enough for actually two months to stay at that inn. And on top of that, he says, if you spend anything more, I'm going to come back and I'll pay it. He was very inconvenienced, wasn't he? This Samaritan, this enemy shows such compassion. Do you remember the lawyer's first question? He asks, okay, I'm to love my neighbor Love my neighbor as I love myself. So who is my neighbor then, Jesus? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers by saying, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to this half-dead man? Do you see what's going on? The lawyer, he's trying to draw boundaries on who he is supposed to love. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. He knows how hard that is. Do you know how many neighbors we have? And so what he's trying to do is, you know what? That's too hard for me, God. So let me make it a little bit more manageable. Let me make it bite-sized. Who specifically am I to love? Am I supposed to love just my Jewish citizens, my family members, my spouse, my kids? Tell me, because then I think I can manage. Not only in breath, but in death, he knows it's too impossible to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, soul. He knows that's impossible. So what this lawyer is trying to do is make it manageable to bring the boundaries closer, to make the scope a little bit more manageable. And Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not, who is my neighbor? The question is, are you becoming a neighbor to others? This is us. Are you becoming a neighbor to others? Instead of just simply asking, God, who do you want me to love? Who are you sending my way along my path? Versus God, 
Who do you want me to pursue? Who do you want me to become a neighbor to? If you notice, Jesus begins the story with a man, a certain man. We don't even know what his ethnicity is. We don't even know if he has any relationship with the Samaritan. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who he is because you're supposed to be a neighbor to that person, regardless of who he is, regardless of who she is, their backgrounds, their ethnicity, how many times they wronged you. It was the Samaritan who showed this kind of mercy, who became a neighbor to this man. And one commentator writes, one does not have a neighbor, but one is a neighbor. Or better yet, one becomes a neighbor. That's the point of this parable. He completely redefines what a neighbor is. The lawyer is fully aware that the demands are too high, too wide for him to fulfill. So he's trying to limit it. He's trying to narrow it down. Something that you and I try to do, right? To love God with all of my heart, mind, soul. Okay, Sundays, meal times when I pray, at night when I teach a Bible story to my kids. But all of my heart, mind, and soul, God, make it a little bit more manageable, please. Okay, I can love my wife, my kids, my coworkers even. That person, to be a neighbor to that person. Do you see how impossible that is? And that's what Jesus is trying to do here. Saying, hey, lawyer, you cannot fulfill this great commandment. And you and I must walk away today knowing that you and I, we cannot fulfill this great commandment. We cannot be a church that shows this kind of mercy. And you might be sitting here today thinking and always struggling with your sins that keep coming back again and again. How can I be righteous the way that God demands me to? Because I can't do it. And this parable tells you that you can't. Not in breath, nor in depth. Because our selfishness, our mechanism cuts a lot deeper than we think. What Jesus is trying to say is I'm the true Samaritan. You are the one half dead on the side of the road. You are the one in need. And the question is not how you can fulfill the law, how you can fulfill the great commandment for you to see that it is you lying on the side of the road and how I, Jesus Christ, comes to fulfill this commandment by the love that I'm showing you in relationship with you. He doesn't define who his neighbor is because Jesus never defined who his neighbor is. For God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son. In the parable of the Samaritan, he came to save or help a certain man, a man he doesn't know. But Jesus, he comes to serve you, to save you, someone he knows very well, all of your sins. The Samaritan, he comes to help, and he has the possibility of being mugged, the possibility of being hurt. But Jesus, the true Samaritan, he knows very well the kind of opposition he's going to face when he came, came to this world to save you and I. The Samaritan, he poured his wine, his oil on the wounds of this person. Jesus, he poured his blood 
on your wounds. This Samaritan, probably his afternoon was inconvenienced for Jesus. His whole eternity was inconvenienced as he took the form of a man, not just for an afternoon, but for all eternity, for your sake. Jesus is telling this parable so that we put ourselves in the footsteps of this half-dead man. And he's saying, unless you first understand the kind of love, the kind of mercy, the kind of compassion that I'm showing you, you will never fulfill this great commandment. You were once his enemy, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For while you were still sinners, while you were still his enemies, while you were still lying on the side of the road, when the whole world was passing you by because you're not good enough, you're not pretty enough, you have too many issues, you can't live like everyone else should be living, when they were passing you by, Jesus came specifically for you. Understand that. Then go love your neighbor. Embrace that. Then embrace your neighbor. What grounds the way we think about our neighbors, one pastor says, is the way we think about our identity, not theirs. What matters first is who we are. Being a neighbor to somebody is not due to who they are, but who you think you are in light of Christ, in light of the gospel. If you truly understand the kind of mercy and compassion that Jesus shows you day in and day out, we don't need the eagles to win tonight for us to show this kind of compassion. And we'll intentionally go out of our ways to put ourselves in the path of most resistance because Christ likewise did so. And if we do that, if our church understands this, we'll be a church of mercy and compassion. Let's pray.